Hey, hey. Okay, so you guys know that I've moved my platform over to Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash Jamie Glowacki. So everything is moved there. That's where I'm now housing all my parenting content. For a dollar a month, you can access all the episodes of my podcast, but no worries if you don't want to do any financial commitment at all. We'll continue to release selected episodes here on your favorite listening platform. And just so you know, I also put up free public posts and mini podcasts on that Patreon page. So all you have to do is head over to that main page, patreon.com slash Jamie Glowacki, and you can see my free public posts and mini podcasts. Head over there to check it all out. And now on to today's show. Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, hey, welcome, welcome. Today we are going to do a Q&A. Happy May. I cannot believe this year is going by so, so fast, probably because we're not stuck at home. Do you remember how long April and May lasted last year in the thick of the pandemic? Okay. I have a couple of great questions that came up from patrons. The first one is about red shirting. So mama wrote to me, tis the season for wrapping up one school year and making decisions about next year. It's actually post season as enrollment begins in January for the following year. I wondered if you have any thoughts on red shirting. My son makes the five-year-old age cutoff for kindergarten by three days, and I've enrolled him in a three, third year of pre-K, so he'll go to kindergarten next fall instead of this fall to give him the gift of a year since he's so young for his age. But his current pre-K teacher threw me a curveball. She said he's more than ready for kindergarten and followed up with all the supporting reasons. Now I'm very much doubting my decision for him to wait another year to enter kindergarten. Just wondered if you have opinions on this topic. I know I ultimately know my kid best, but I'd always appreciate your insight. Yes, I have strong feelings about redshirting. For those of you who may not know, redshirting is the practice of postponing entrance into kindergarten of age-eligible children in order to allow extra time for social, emotional, intellectual, or physical growth. So redshirting is a little controversial because some parents are accused of using it to give their kid an advantage, yeah? So that the kid's a little bit older, so maybe like the smarter person in the class rather than the youngest and therefore not 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 smart, but just, you know, behind, a year behind. So here's the other thing. In most instances, I think we are infantilizing our kids to the point of crippling them. I hear regularly four, four and a half year olds that are in cribs, in diapers, and it fucking blows my mind that people want their kids to be autonomous and people want their kids to help with chores and people want to raise healthy, well-adjusted members of society and four-year-olds are in cribs and in diapers. So that drives me nuts. And I do think across the board, we don't let children take risks. We don't appreciate all their gifts and their talents, you know, starting at young ages. We don't encourage growth. I think that's a huge issue with society. In this case, (laughs) I think it's best to hold the child back. And I will give my examples. 
Well, first of all, even without my personal feeling, kindergarten school has gotten jacked up. Kindergarten is more like what you probably experienced in first or second grade. For me, honestly, I had some clients during the pandemic whose kids were doing kindergarten Zoom. And I was like, dude, I clearly remember uh, learning about that in third grade. That's number one. So already kids are going into a competitive atmosphere where the markers, it used to be when I went to school that everybody had till about the third grade to shake things out. That is not the case anymore. They have, because of Common Core, because of this like, don't fall behind stuff that you know irritates me, kindergartners are like rushed. They have to be reading or they're going to be marked you know, they're going to be labeled. They have to hit these academic milestones that I believe are very, very developmentally inappropriate. So to give your child a potential year difference in kids could be huge for them. So the other thing with kids, and especially we know this with boys, girls mature socially and emotionally a little faster than boys. So, you know, your kid could be academically on par, but are they socially or socially they could be on par, but are they academically? And so you have to really weigh these things in. Now, what you need to know is that like this mama, and I I think it might be different in every state and I'm so far removed because of homeschooling and just the age of my child, like what requirements are. But, you know, if your child is at, you know, three days past the cutoff or, you know, before the cutoff, remember that there's going to be three or four kids in that class who are a year, a full year older than that child. So I experienced this with Pascal. And it was funny because I offered to take care of two, there were two working families in his kindergarten class. And I offered to take their little girls, you know, after kindergarten, you know, after the day ended, I'd take them to the playground and they'd come to my house till their parents got out of work. And it was fun. Pascal got to hang with his classmates. And these little girls were both like excelling. They were reading chapter books in kindergarten. And I was like, whoa. And then it occurred to me, they both had their birthday parties in early September, like school started. And I think one of the little girls birthday was September 10th. Pascal is June 1st. So I was like, oh, well, this little girl is a year, like a year older than Pascal. She's like 10 months older than Pascal. That's a huge difference in some of these ages. And so he was, you know, June isn't exactly a cutoff. So I didn't, I didn't redshirt him because he had like a few months, you know, but it made a big difference. And, and it, it just was highlighted to me like, oh my God, that's like really, he wasn't close to reading chapter books. So 10 months at that age can make such a huge difference academically. Now it didn't, it didn't matter because he was like, for him, it wasn't a, a detriment. You know, he he was learning with the rest of the kids. Those girls happened to also be a little bit advanced. So he he was fine academically where he was, but it really highlighted for me how big a difference that can be. The other thing for me personally, so there was none of these age cutoffs when I went to school. So I started kindergarten when I was four. I graduated high school when I was 17 and started my first semester and a half of college was, I was 17. 
because we didn't have these cutoffs, you know, and I super struggled. Now, I also had a growing disorder. So we have to throw that into the mix. Like I didn't hit puberty till after high school, but I really suffered socially and emotionally because middle school. So once you, you know, maybe okay for kindergarten, but you've got to think about other things. So one of the reasons middle school is such a clusterfuck is because every kid is at such a different age. And one of the things for me is now my, you know, again, my growing disorder factored into it, but I was also so much younger than everybody else that I was playing with dolls when other girls were interested in kissing boys. And like, that's a huge difference. And that really affected my friendships. It affected, it really affected everything because I remember like being not really understanding why my best friends, you know, I was at the like, oh, let's hold hands and tell secrets phase. And these girls were like, you know, ditching me left and right for boys. And I totally didn't understand it. So you have to think it's not just kindergarten. It's not just like, oh, can my kid read a chapter book? Or, oh, my kid is advanced in this. Or my kid seems to have a handle on some emotional wisdom. That's all well and good. But think they're now on a track and that track is going to keep going. And so in middle school, you got to remember a year difference hormonally is fucked up. And so middle school already is a clusterfuck because of that. I started noticing that. I mean, even when Pascal was little, I was like, I I thought actually I would keep him in school till about fifth grade. And then I would take him out and homeschool for middle school and high school. Hormonally speaking, I had thought I would take him out in middle school because I don't know, middle school is awful. And I see it personally with my friends who have kids in, in school but it's it's awful, I think, again, because of the hormonal differences. Like the kids are all over the map. There's some kids who are not hitting puberty. There are some kids who are just hitting puberty. And there are some kids who are on the other side of puberty. I remember in fourth grade where we were, I was in a Catholic school and two girls were so well-developed and they had already had their period. And I remember it was kind of scandalous because it was like, you know, a Catholic school. I don't know why it was scandalous that girls get their period, but they were pretty young. Fourth grade is pretty young. And these girls were oh my God, they were always in so much trouble for boy, boy crazy, boy crazy. But hormonally, that's where they were. You know, their hormones were like, bring it. So that's why I am a fan of keeping, you know, if your kid's on the cusp, I say just keep them in pre-K another year or keep them home for another year. The markers may be okay for kindergarten, but it's all, you got to think ahead. And so- Those are my personal examples, but I also, again, like knowing the content and the material that's in kindergarten these days is really intense. Also, you can always start it. And if your kid is just can't handle it, you can always take them out, you know, and and wait another year. But I also think like this is one of those places where parents can be oddly competitive on both ends, you know? So I would, you know, I don't think this mama who wrote me is, is being competitive, but that's what I've seen like out in the community. But I think it's better to give your kid the advantage. And I think it's better for them to be a little bit older than a little bit younger because the younger it's like constant. I just played catch up my whole life, my whole school career. I just felt like I was playing catch up. And even with the material, I was constantly being challenged. Like I never, Maybe not too. Well, once I was in high school, like I loved history and I was really good at English, but I, I just remember feeling like, ugh, I was on this constant treadmill of like, get older, get older, get older so I can keep up. So those are my thoughts on red light, red, redlining, red shirting, redlining is a totally different thing. 
All right. Another mama wrote to me. I have a question regarding developing health, healthy relationships with food. My husband and I both agree that food should not be used as a reward system. Kids are not dogs, nor should it be used as a form of punishment, like how some people used to withhold dinner for bad behavior. This pre-parenthood seemed very cut and dry. Side note, doesn't everything before you're a parent? (laughs) Now the water is murky at best. I'm not sure where the lines are drawn any longer. For example, when my three-year-old and I make ice cream in the afternoon and I tell her that if she eats a good dinner, she can have some after dinner, is that using food as a reward? If she is not behaving, is it using food as a punishment to say your behavior is not acceptable and is not deserving of ice cream? We can try again tomorrow. I feel like things like this are holding it over her head as a bribe, behave or else no ice cream. Moreover, when we tell her if she eats two more bites of meat and one bite of her veggie, she can have more potatoes or whatever. Is that using food as a reward? I don't know what's what anymore. I mean, I could make an argument for either side. I'd love for you to weigh in on this. And I had said, yeah, like I'll totally address this in a a podcast. And she wrote back, thanks so much. Like I said, an argument can be made for either side. It's so funny how we all knew everything before we actually had kids. But once you're in the trenches, it's a totally different story. Yeah, 100%. And again, this is why the values, the core values chapter in Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler is so valuable because this is, again, you and your husband discuss this. You discuss this before you had kids, which good for you, but you didn't know that it would turn out so murky. And so then this is where parents get off the same parenting page, right? Like you had this idea, but then the nuances fuck you up. So I didn't actually, I think this is a great question because I didn't cover this in like the sugar episode. And when we talked about food and trauma and all the episodes that I've done thus far on food and relationships with food. It's a really good question. And I am 100% in the camp of food should not be a reward or a punishment. I think that's a quick way to set up a very unhealthy relationship with our kids and food. So what do you do? So I think if you're going to have dessert and dessert is part of your family culture, which it can be, and it was for us, and it was always something small though. So rather than having a dessert, like a, you know, a a pie or cake or something like that. It was like a small piece of something. So I had, you know, size bowls. So like, like in this example with ice cream, a very small scoop of ice cream or a very small piece of chocolate or something like that. It was very, very small. And it was just the end cap to the meal. And I think of food in these instances, like dessert in particular, like allowances. And I'm often asked about allowances. So I'll, I'll, tie them together in a very odd way. I think kids should get an allowance to learn money management. I don't think it should be tied to chores. I don't think it should be a bribery system. I think kids need to learn money management and need to learn how to save and how to accumulate and what to do with the money. And I think it needs to be not tied to chores because chores are not I don't pay. I don't pay for chores, just like I don't pay you to eat a good dinner. Yeah. So that's what you have to think. If you're using it as a reward, it's payment. And Chocolate is amazing currency for kids. Ice cream, sweets, dessert, that's that's the currency of childhood, right? So you are paying them. And so when you think of it like that, I think it gets a little clearer, which is like, I'm not paying you. That's why I don't like potty training rewards. Like, I'm going to pay you to put your pee and poop in the toilet. I'm not paying you to do 
chores. I'm not paying you to set the table. I'm not paying you to get good grades. These are the things that we expect. This is what makes a human. Uh, I, I don't pay for those things. So if you're going to have dessert, I don't think it should be tied to the amount they eat at dinner. Now, I understand I understand your headspace. I understand why you want a healthy dinner. But if you keep dessert to a containment, so again, like a very small bowl, and that's it. That's all they have. Then it can't escalate. So the thing with using food as rewards is there's an escalation, okay? And so what the escalation can be is I want more, right? And that's one of my issues, again, with rewards across the board is for rewards to be effective, they sort of have to escalate. So if your child gets more ice cream, they will then get full on the ice cream and it won't take them long to figure out like, oh, okay, I want more ice. You know, I want, that's all I want to eat. And I often get parents who have picky eaters who are down to literally, I've said this in other episodes, the child will only eat brownies and strawberries. And I'm like, yeah, but how did you get there? Because you got there slowly. You got there by trying foods and then resorting to eat something. Here's brownies and strawberries. So there's that. I think that one of the things we have to look at is when a child does it, like if your child's eating well and they're eating their dinner, but tonight, you know, this is like outside of the realm of picky eaters and sensory issues. But if your child's eating pretty well, why do they have to have that last bite of meat? Why is it two more bites of meat? Like, why is that a line in the sand? I think kids eat very often, toddlers eat like snakes. And Pascal certainly did. And I, I hear this a lot with my clients, which is they'll have, they'll eat a goat and spend the rest of the month digesting it, you know, metaphorically. So they'll have days where they might be having a growth spurt. They played a lot. They eat like, you're like, holy shit, I can't even keep up with feeding this kid. Then they're going to have days that they don't eat a lot. So I encourage parents to always look at food and nutrition through at the very bare bones, a daily lens, not a meal lens, but ultimately a few days to a week lens. Like if you look at your kid's nutrition through the week, did they get a fair amount of protein? Did they get a fair amount of carbohydrates? Did they get a fair amount of uh, fat? And so that's how you want to sort of pull apart their nutrition. When we get down to one more bite, that's where power struggles start. And that's also where I see parents you know, when you care too much about something, that's when your toddler's going to resist. So the more you're like, two more bites, two more bites, the more they're going to be like, nah. So look at the meal. Number one, make sure you're giving them age appropriate food. So a lot of times people put too much food on their kid's plate and the kid gets overwhelmed. So, you know, make sure that there's not too much food and whatever it is, you know, you think that your child, you know, I'm I'm in the camp of protein and fat. And so make sure they have like a lot of that and then like whatever the carbohydrate is. So in this case, like it's a tricky question because like, can I, can, you know, you have to eat your, your veggies and your meat before you get more potatoes. I can see where it's super murky and you just have to know your kid. So is the child hungry today and does need more potatoes? Potatoes, remember carbohydrates they're quick acting fuel. They're delicious. Most of us could go down a carbohydrate hole if, if allowed, right? And childhood, I've said this before, childhood is, is wrought with carbohydrates. They're, they're carb heads. They're like hardwired for carbohydrates because it's great. It's growth food. It's high energy food. It gets them through, but it can get disproportionate with the way our food supply and is, is designed now when we have access to so much food and so many carbohydrates. 
So like potatoes is a question because you don't want your child to only eat potatoes and they can go down that path very quickly, just like mac and cheese, just like pizza, just like French fries, you know, and those are the foods that kids get down to singular food. No kid who's a picky eater gets down to a singular food of like chicken and broccoli. They just don't, you know, parents aren't like, I'm so worried my child will only eat vegetables and protein. That's not what happens, right? We get worried because you're like, oh my God, I'm so worried my kid will only eat this super carb heavy food. The other thing, if you recall from the sugar episode is the carbs are fast acting energy. So the glucose hits the bloodstream and you're more likely to get behavioral or mood stuff going on when your child has like super rich carbohydrates without the protein and the fat. So I can see where that is a little bit murky and that might be, you might start a culture, a family meal culture of, you know, we don't have seconds till the plate is clear, knowing that you gave them an appropriate amount of, of protein and vegetables in this particular case, you can have more vegetables when your plate is clear. So that's how I would approach it is, you know, seconds that's that's a, a meal culture as opposed to bribery or reward, which is like, okay, you can have whatever you want for seconds as soon as your meal is cleared, you know, your plate is cleared. And again, not going into the clean plate club. So that's where like, you've got to clear your plate no matter what. And I don't agree with that philosophy, but in the case of if a child wants seconds of what you know could potentially be a rabbit hole of, oh shit, now my kid will only eat mashed potatoes. That's how you would clear that. I I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't feel free to comment, you know, on this podcast and I'll try to pull it apart. It makes sense to me, but so many things do, and then they don't make sense to other people. Now, when it comes to treats, I think treats should not be associated with any rewards. Not like, oh my God, you had such a great day at, at school. Let's go get an ice cream. I think it's okay to just have a treat. Yeah. And that's how I always approached it, which is like, I don't know. Let's go get a treat. I feel like having a treat, you know? And so I think it should just be unattached. And so in that case with the ice cream in the afternoon, you know, knowing your child's habits and appetite and all of that, maybe it would have been like, Hey, let's have a taste of our ice cream right now to make sure it's delicious. Yeah. I think it's okay sometimes to go out of the norm as much as toddlers love routine is like, you know, Hey, let's, let's have ice cream before dinner or ice cream. You know, if you're making ice cream, probably it's really um, a, a healthier version than the store. And I think it's, you know, there's some real benefits to how ha- I love ice cream. If I could eat one food for the rest of my life and it had no ill effects on my body, on my mood, on my energy, it would 100% be ice cream. I love it. So- <laughs> So this example from this mom is probably a bad one for me because I'm like, you should have had ice cream the minute you were done making. (laughs) So I do think, you know, what a great activity. You guys are making ice cream together. And, you know, why not have a little bit before? So and I used to do that, too, like sometimes like, hey, I don't know what's going to happen in life. Like, why don't we go? You know, there can be ice cream for dinner in the summertime. We've done that with the kids. So that can be a super fun thing. But yes, I don't agree because this mama wasn't saying one side or the other. That was the wrong word. I do think that treats are super valid and they can just be unattached again to behavior. You got to be really careful because food, 
I've said this before, like food actually isn't love. I know in a lot of cultures it's, it's portrayed like, I love you, eat, eat, you know, the Italian grandmother, the Jewish mother, like we have these cultures like eat, 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 you know, I'd show my love for you, but it's really hard. Like just, you don't want to get, it can tripwire. We hear so many kids like, oh yeah, my mom, you know, when they get older, they ended up with some sort of eating disorder or, you know, struggling with food or struggling with um, body image and things like that, because it's like, well, my mom just, you know, anytime I was sad, my mom fed me. Anytime I was super happy, my mom fed me. So these things can, for some kids, they just, nothing happens and the kids are fine. But for other kids, you can just activate a tripwire and it goes in sideways and we'll never know why, but I always think it's best to take food out of emotions. I always think dinner time shouldn't be struggling, you know, like clear your, you know, eat what's on your plate. And again, making sure that you really did give an appropriate amount, but I'm not a fan of the one more bite, two more bites. I I think it just creates a lot of struggle. And so it can always be like, Hey, if you're done, you can get down. That's cool. You know, I've said this before, you can save the plate. Maybe they might be a little bit hungry later on, but I think it's just really hard as well with meals. It's really hard for us to remove ourselves, our adult stomach size and our adult appetite from the toddler stomach size and the toddler appetite. So, you know, I think that's a fair way to approach it. And again, if you want, you know, if you have dessert and, you know, okay, are you done? Okay, great. So, in a normal setting, like say your child's eaten most of their meal, you judge it that they should have two more bites, but they've eaten, they've eaten a, a decent amount. I think it's totally okay to clear the plate, have that tiny bit of dessert, and then move on with your evening. I don't think there's a lot of danger there in in the child just going down the path of only like only wanting dessert. But again, I'm talking about average healthy eaters, kids who are, you know, in general, if you've got a real picky eater and you know it, you don't probably want to, you probably don't want dessert. In that case, I would detach food from the end of the meal and just make it something arbitrary during the day. I had a question on social media about distraction. And when is distraction good? And when is distraction bad? Like, when are we distracting our kids? Like, do our kids have to go through certain things or should we be distracting them to settle their emotions? And I thought that was a really good question because one of the things, one of the reasons, if you go back at the beginning of when I first started doing podcasts on Patreon, and I know some of you are listening and you're new, so you may haven't gotten through the you know, massive amount of material here on Patreon. But one of my big things is the go to your room strategy as opposed to a timeout. And the go to your room strategy is to have your child out of the milieu, have them not falling out in the middle of your house and and wrecking everybody's day. But it's also to help them learn what self-regulates them. And one of our misconceptions as parents is that we can help another human self-regulate. And we really can't. We can hold space for them while they're self-regulating, but we can't help somebody self-regulate. So the other thing about this go-to-your-room strategy that is vital is it allows your child, you're not shutting down the emotion. It allows your child to run the track of whatever they're on. And so one of the things I'm finding in current parenting is an eagerness to fix 
any high emotion and distract the child away from it, which is okay sometimes, but we're not allowing the child their full experience of the emotions. And so that becomes the bigger issue. And I just, just literally today as I'm recording this, so this is April 30th, uh, I just posted on Instagram, the arc of a tantrum. And as a tantrum, you know, there's, there's a couple of like levels of meltdown. Some is just like a huge reaction. Like your kid's having this like huge reaction because you gave them the green cup instead of the orange cup. And they're having this big reaction. That's a go to your room. Yeah. And even sort of in a, you know, tantrums are usually when everything explodes in the child at once, you know, brain synapses are like not working. Wires are crossed. Skin is inside out. Everything's raw. And the child starts to lose it. Then there's like just your average meltdown, which is like, oh my God, I can't. Like usually those are at the end of the day. They're due to being tired or overstimulated. Those are like just meltdowns, right? That's how I categorize them. So, you know, as the tantrum, as a typical tantrum is starting to arc up, there's a window of opportunity where you can distract. Yeah. And, you know, if your child's going into some high emotion, that's where you might be like, oh, hey, do you want to go outside for a minute? Oh, hey, do you want to like settle down and watch a little bit of Moana? Oh, hey, you know, that's where you might be able to distract. But what I see, and I see this out in public, I see this with, you know, out in my community, I see this with clients, is there comes a place where I call it juggling fire and spinning plates. So like that, you know, if you think in the circus, like spinning plates on dowels and juggling fire. You're going above and beyond. Yeah. It's like trying to soothe the child with abnormal, like you find your, you you look like a dancing monkey. Oh my God. Do you want this? Oh, how about this? 